Okay, I was wondering. Um, hi, guys. Um, thanks for joining us today. Thanks to the Youth Lab, Youth Capital, and Open, Di- Open Dialogue team for having us. Um, so in my view, no, I think the president was incredibly dishonest um, about the state of the nation. Um, I think, first, speaking from a youth development perspective, the first time he actually said the word youth was about 45 minutes into his speech. Um, and I think just generally, you know, if we think about the state of South Africa, there is no way you can have a conversation about where our country is in right now without talking about youth as a priority. And so I remember sitting and watching the speech and going, this man hasn't spoken about us yet. Um, and and literally the first time he did it, we were 45 minutes in, I checked, my, checked the clock and I said, wow, this is, this is amazing. We're at the end of the speech and he's like, oh yeah, and those young people too. Um, but I think he also did poorly so one of the things he did a lot was kind of acknowledge government's failure to do certain things right and so the speech felt very um pessimistic in in some senses but i don't think he gave an accurate view around what it's actually like to be a citizen of south africa right um and i think it points to Definitely, number one, how disengaged our leaders are from our everyday lives. But number two, how uninterested government is in actually just doing their jobs, right? So I think, you know, we've all been talking about that story about the ice cream shop that was apparently started with with the 350 rand, right? Um, There were so many other stories like those and and announcements that he had made in the speech that were simply untrue. Um, And an easy kind of internet search, you know, just talking to people who are in the know could reveal all of the untruths that were told. Um, And so I think, because I I, I don't want to take up too much time on my answer, but I don't think that he gave us an accurate view of what South Africans have to live through every single day, right? He did a lot of talk about investments. There was stuff about visas and kind of very big um big problem uh, promises right but we didn't he didn't talk much about unemployment he didn't talk much about safety he didn't talk much about health right all of the i, I think i remember tweeting um that it felt like it was the covid closing ceremony um because he talked about you know how we're like over the worst and how we they're trying to lift lockdown very soon and so it felt very much like he was trying to distract us with big talks um, and not talking enough about the kind of nitty gritty issues that we have to deal with every day. All right. May I speak? Yes, yes, please go ahead. Welcome, Kaya. Uh, No, thank you. And good evening to everyone. So I I think the um, reality of any state of the nation address is that whoever delivers it, whichever president stands up there on the podium, has always got this great dilemma that they need to resolve. And this is the dilemma of how to balance the reflective elements of it, particularly if it's not your first one. We know that it was President Ramaphosa's sixth state of the nation address. Of course, the question of, well, when you stood on this platform last year, obviously the the old parliament that before it burned down, you made particular undertakings and you made particular promises. Now, most of those things have quite simply not worked out, but you still cannot afford not to reflect on them at all. So what you then end up doing is that you undertake a cherry picking exercise of saying that from those commitments that I'd made last year, if some of them have progressed in a way that I can say I can talk about this and at least, you know, it, it moved in one into another, then that's what you tend to highlight. What then becomes the 
additional dilemma is that having tried to sort of highlight what you've done well, there is the question of, well, if I'm going to leave this podium, this platform, with any sense of credibility, there has to then either be an acknowledgement that some of the things have either not worked as well as I thought that they would, or haven't worked at all. And it's in that particular reflection where, of course, one tends to hold back and not be as frank as it would like to be. So what President Ramaphosa has now mastered is the art of simply saying that, well, if I mentioned it and if I committed to it and I haven't been able to execute on it, how do I then maintain the veneer, at least, that something is still happening and that's part of what I'd committed to, even though I may be changing track on it a bit. So, of course, if you now go and look at everything that he has said historically about the need to unleash small business as a conduit of getting the employment sorted. Well, whoever is put in charge of the small business ministry since 2018 hasn't had a clue on what to do with that. Now, of course, given the fact that absolutely everyone across the divide acknowledges that it's important, knows that he has acknowledged that it's important, the only way for him to then get around dealing with the fact that he hasn't delivered on that promise is to then give us this idea that in order to do this a bit better i'm now doing something a bit different and that's why you then announce that someone like um asiponkosi is going to be appointed to do something to accelerate this thing that you committed to and you just quite simply haven't managed to do so that's some of the things that you see emerging from that particular speech another big ticket item that he's been trumpeting since 2018 is of course the question of what to do with the country's energy crisis is escom to be unbundled should escom be unbundled what difference does it make or, uh, or does it not make and of course that question has accelerated in the past year because the one problem that he's had is that his convictions on what needs to be done with the whole country's energy crisis are not always correlated to what his foot soldier who is the minister in charge of that sector always does and always pronounces so we now know that there are significant divergences of opinion between the president and the minister in relation to what needs to be done about the current crisis that's the first problem what needs to be done about the question of climate change? That's a secondary problem. And more importantly, how do you then transition from where you are to where the country, under the leadership of the president, has committed to a way it's going to be in the various UN platforms that it's been on? So in relation to that particular dimension, he understands the importance of it. He knows that he has to mention it. But of course, the person that he's supposed to be working hand in hand with, they're not seeing eye to eye in relation to what needs to be done about that and how it needs to be resolved. So in his speech, then he has to give us the impression that something is being done, something is being fixed. And luckily for him, he had one moment last year, which you could carry into this particular State of the Nation address. And that was the day where he summoned all of us to a press briefing that said the minister has recently published a gazette and the gazette i think it was uh, published in april if i'm not mistaken it was a gazette that said that those that are capable of generating their own electricity will now be allowed to do so in other words nasa the regulator will no longer prohibit you if you say that you want to generate electricity of up to 10 uh, megawatts now remember historically the answer was one megawatt in other words don't bother so the minister with cabinet issues a, a, a gazette they said that the answer is 10 megawatts now that was at odds with what big business had asked for big business had said 50 megawatts is what we can work with so having put the gazette from a cabinet that he presided over six weeks later he then um, ushers in the surprise press briefing and then he says the answer is 100 megawatts and i remember specifically asking him to say wait well, of course 
everybody's going to celebrate that the answer is 100 megawatts. But my great concern is that you presided over a cabinet that we now have to believe undertook a very extensive process of saying, what should the answer be? They came up with an answer that says 10 megawatts. And now here you are six weeks later coming up with a completely different answer. Can you tell us what has changed within that particular time frame? And of course, I never got an answer to that, as you can imagine, that no answer to such a thing was going to be forthcoming. A secondary question that I asked at that particular press briefing was to say, well, the reason we've had this tension point for so many years is that there's always been an acknowledgement that if you let the private sector take over the entire electricity supply in the country, there's going to be consequences for the end users who may suddenly not be able to afford it. So my simple question was, have you then established what the consequences and the impacts of this announcement that you're making are going to be on ESCOM? And remarkably, he didn't have an answer at that point in time. So of course, if you then track the progress of a man who's had to deal with those particular dilemmas over the course of a year, when he then tries to put together the reflective statement that says, this is what we've managed to do in the past 12 months, and then sells an idea that this is what we plan to do in the next 12 months, the speech by design, the speech by, 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 by creature is never going to be an honest account. It's simply a matter of us staying alert enough to be able to pick up the parts that are actually related to what is committed to be formed, and then split that out from the hyperbole that we tend to hear. If you remember a couple of years ago, the great hyperbole was that he wanted to, to build smart cities. Absolutely every single citizen who listened to that knew that that was never going to happen under his administration. It was never going to happen under his leadership. So this speech is always something to be taken with a sense of skepticism, with a sense of salt, and it becomes our collective duty to then pick out parts of it that make sense, pick up parts of it that are worth interrogating, but to hope that the speech is supposed to be a true account of the state of affairs in the country is unfortunately not the way these speeches tend to be. I'm silent now. Thank you, Kaya, and thank you, um, Pearl, for your answers. I, I agree with you both. It's very disheartening to hear that um, there's, there's not much progress. Um, so the next question drills down on a difficult aspect from last week. The president reported back on the presidential employment stimulus creating over a million opportunities through various programs, but didn't speak on what this means for youth unemployment in the long term. Uh, do you think we need to reevaluate the current job creation um, strategy for young people? Pearl, you can go first. Oh, this is my favorite question, because this was one of the first speeches in which he didn't actually talk about the million jobs, right? So he he usually he likes to throw out the big the big numbers around unemployment and this time he didn't and i thought okay you know he's learning don't throw out the big numbers don't say the big things because then people are going to say hey dog where are the jobs and you're not going to have an answer right um what he did do is he talked a lot about the national youth service um and and how many um young people were anticipated to go through it this year he mentioned um, 50,000 young people, right? That was one of the things that he said was false because the funding that Treasuries provided the NYDA with is only enough for about 35,000 young people. Um, and he knows that because it's coming from his office. Um, so I think, you know, to answer the question, um, 
the way we think about creating employment for youth especially needs to be completely overhauled, right? I think if anyone's if anyone's listened to anything I've said over the last few years um, about programs like Yes in particular, um, for those that don't know, Yes is the Youth Employment Scheme, um, and it's a it's a program that's supposed to be a partnership between the private sector and the government um, to place. Um, young people into work opportunities. Now, YES has faced multiple failures since its inception. It continues to face um, many, many failures. And what's happening is it's just more and more money being pumped into something that's just not working, right? The president then announced the the PYEI, which is the President Youth um, Employment Initiative. Um, And under that banner is a range of different employment um, initiatives that's meant to kind of act as a support to YES. So YES is part of um, this big banner uh, of of different initiatives, but they all imagine employment to be the same thing, right? So they either say, "Oh well, people must become entrepreneurs," which I think is one of the biggest dreams that we're selling to young people in South Africa, right? 75%, I think it is, of businesses in South Africa fail within their first three years. Um, And South Africa's list is one of the most difficult places to do um, business in, right? So under the backdrop of that, um, you've created a a department of small businesses, like Kaya mentioned, that has no idea what they're doing. You've now brought in yet another person into the presidency, which, and and I think as a sidebar, something for us to watch very closely right is the amount of commissions the amount of um, new people that are being brought directly into the presidency Um, and it makes me wonder you know what is the need for cabinet so why do we need a department of small businesses if now you found one man to sit in the presidency and apparently cut all the red tape right Um, and so that's the backdrop under which you're expected to do entrepreneurship and then you're saying oh well entrepreneurship is one of the big solves the second thing is it imagines that employment can only happen if the private sector drives it right and that was a big thing that kind of featured throughout his speech um, last week was that you know we need the private sector if the private sector doesn't do this then you know we're just all in very big trouble Um, And I think what was interesting to note was how excited the DA was about that particular part of the speech. And, you know, if you have any kind of involvement with politics in South Africa, you know that as soon as the DA gets excited about something, we should not be excited about it. Um, And so this kind of heavy reliance on the the private sector, um, what they kind of do is, you know, they throw tax incentives, they throw um, BEE points at the private sector and say, oh, well, you know, you're going to get a tax break, you're going to get this, you're going to get that if you create jobs. And what you do is you create a revolving door of kind of interns that are traditionally underpaid, overworked, and does nothing for young people's own capabilities, their own ambitions, their own sense of what they want to do with their lives and how they want to contribute to society, right? And so until we 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 stop thinking about employment as, you know, a jobby job, we are not going to be able to solve the problem, right? So we're saying unemployment number one is the private sector's problem because government just can't do anything apparently um people must get into entrepreneurship but we're not creating any kind of environment for them to do so and beyond that we don't have any fresh ideas right now i'm not sure i know the answer to unemployment it's you know in the many jobs that i currently hold we've been trying to figure a lot of that out but what we do know is that all of the 
the initiatives we've been doing in the past have not been working. This idea that in unemployment can only be solved through these random internships, right? If, if you guys remember, we have the expanded public works programs, which tells young people that, you know, a job that is a dignified job is you standing on the street and waving a flag while someone is doing roadworks, right? And government clapped their hands and said, look, we're providing work opportunities for young people. So I think we need a big rethink about, number one, what are the things we value in our country, right? And particularly if we talk about young people, because we're talking youth unemployment, how do we value the role that young people have to play in South Africa, right? It's got to be beyond kind of providing... um, Sorry, as another sidebar, I remember when Yes was being launched, there was an interview that was being done with one of the young people who was apparently affiliated with the program. And she said on live TV, she said, you know, what's great about the Yes program is that it provides um, the private sector with a constant source of cheap labor. Right. And I think that speaks to the overall lens through which government views um, youth unemployment in particular, right, that we have this giant number of young people who are sitting at home. And so any kind of piecemeal job that we throw at them, they're going to take it because they have nothing else. And so I think there needs to be an overhaul with the, the kinds of things that we value, um, how we see young people's contribution to the society that we live in, but also to kind of take back some of the power that government has, right? The reliance, the over-reliance on the private sector, the lack of fresh ideas, um, the thinking that, you know, one person is going to fix red tape magically and then all our entrepreneurship problems are going to be solved. I think we need to start thinking a bit realistically um, and making some some more um, assertive decisions, right? But I think if we if we talk about our current president, one of the things he's come under fire for the most is not being a leader who is very decisive. And so I think until he can figure out a way to kind of flex his muscle a little bit. We're going to keep repeating these jobs that just kind of provide internships with no real experience, no real exit strategy, um, no real career, you know, pathway management program. Um, and so young people are just going to bounce from internship to internship until we all just eventually give up. Sorry, I lost track of the mute button. The the employment dimension, um, I think it's always going to be a very, very delicate and a very difficult tightrope for the president of South Africa. And the problem that I've learned to sort of appreciate over time is that in many conversations, we tend to uh, try to strip out some sectors of society and ask the question of what is being done for them. So if we talk youth employment or, or youth unemployment forever, it seems to operate on the premise that there is a general trend towards better employment opportunities for society at large. And now we just want to check what that trend is in relation to young people. Unfortunately, the fact is that there isn't any growth in employment for anyone. So even if you say that we want to focus on youth employment, the reality here is that until jobs are being created, only then can we then say, okay, from the jobs that have been created, how many of them are being allocated to young people. And the problem is that since there are none being being created, the president probably can't even try and strip out the parts that are going to young people because there's nothing, there's nothing going to anyone. 
the new nomenclature that we've become accustomed to is this idea of a job opportunity, which seems to be a very elegant way of saying that we are going to give people exposure to a form of a job, but we are unable to guarantee the sustainability of that job, even in the medium term. So therefore, the concept of a job opportunity implies something that is rather transient in nature rather than permanent in form or substance. And what that does is that it enables the government to simply say that we gave it to so many people. So if you look at how the year's program was trumpeted, for example, it was essentially the great game changer of this particular administration. If you go and Google and you put yes program, the very first thing that confronts you is a picture of the president sitting next to Stephen Kosev and other big leaders. In other words, it was the one program where he had somehow managed to convince the public sector to buy into uh, the private sector to buy into it in order to give opportunities to young people. The problem that emerged even from day one, and I think some of the colleagues at the NYDA um, uh, picked it up from that point in time, was a simple question of, okay, you then said to the private sector, they must give this opportunity to young people, but what happens when they either run out of the things that they want them to do? What happens if the time frame expires? Is there a thing, is there anything that binds the private sector into keeping these young people permanently engaged and permanently employed and the simple answer was that there was no such thing so of course it now feels like it was a good idea that quite simply just didn't achieve the impact that it wanted to do so what you then end up with is at best the president can say there were a million job opportunities but because there isn't a universal or a, a universally understood definition of what is a job opportunity and what its overlaps or divergences, if, if it may be, with the job itself, the data becomes meaningless. So if he said there's a million job opportunities that are created for, for young people, he specifically does not tell you that there are a million young people that are at work as a result of this, because it may then turn out that very few of them have remained there. And I think Pearl used the idea uh, of, you know, that revolving door. So one young people, one young person enters today because another one exited the day before. So it looks like there's a huge number of it, but that doesn't mean that there are a million people or any whatever, whatever number the president might cite that are employed at that point in time. And that is the great challenge of the South African economy. So until there are jobs to begin with, us trying to then try and find um, whether enough young people have been allocated a job does become an exercise in futility because until there are jobs to start with, it doesn't really matter what type of society or what sector of society you're trying to calculate the job opportunities for, the answer is zero for most. Thank you, Taya, um, and thank you, Pearl, for those reflections. Before Faiza comes in with the next question, I do want to welcome those who recently joined us. Um, if you weren't here from the beginning of the space, we are having an in-depth analysis, and I think we're focusing particularly on everything the president mentioned during SONA um, that um, points to young people, right? And I think just the social and economic advancement of young people in this country. We've touched a bit, um, I think, on... COVID recovery, as well as youth um, employment initiatives. But I just want to take this time to invite you um, to please raise your hand if you do want to speak. This is a collaborative space. We do have Pearl and Kaya, but we'd like to hear from um, as many voices as possible. So if there's a point from last week's phone that particularly didn't sit well with you, I know that I've been seeing a lot of people on Twitter um, talk about this issue of bringing people into the presidency to do jobs that are supposed to be um, done within cabinets. 
if you have anything to say around that, please raise your hand um, and we'll give you an opportunity to speak. But I think also while we're talking about youth unemployment and the ways in which I think uh, the government is viewing the youth unemployment problem, if you're a young person in the space and you've gone through um, some of the programs within YES, you've gone through some of those work opportunities and you still find yourself unemployed, we'd like to hear from you. Or if actually if that opportunity positioned you to get more um, another job or another opportunity, we'd also like to hear um, your perspective. So please don't be shy. Um, this is a collaborative space. I'm saying this again. Uh, and we want to hear from as many voices as possible. Um, if you do want to meet us, the hashtag is um, so what. Thanks, Faiza. Um, you may continue. Thank you, Dimpo. Thank you, Kaya and, and Pearl for sharing your insights. It makes sense why young people are going to continue to struggle to thrive in this country. Numbers don't lie and um, the president really do need to um, get to work. Um, so I know you too briefly mentioned the debacle between government and reliance on private sector to drive job creation. So as we all heard in the speech, the president did say that it's the private sector's role to create jobs. And while the state has to create a conductive environment, can you tell us more on how you interpret um, that statement when he, when the president said that? Paul, you can go first. Um, thanks, Baza. So I think for me, when we when we talk about what a conducive environment looks like, um, I mean, he, he was right, you know, there is a lot of red tape that small businesses have to face. And I thought that the creation of a department of small business would kind of look at that, right, and figure out what is it that young entrepreneurs need to be able to flourish in our economy. Um, I think there's not enough investment done in building the capacity of young entrepreneurs. Um, you don't often understand what an entrepreneurial journey looks like until you're in it, right? And so it's it's a lot of on-the-job learning. It requires a lot of mentorship. It requires a lot of hand-holding, a lot of support, and not just support in terms of saying, oh, here are the things you need to know, but a lot of resource support, right? Businesses need funding. They need access to credit. They need, um, you know, we talk big about how important the agricultural sector is, and the president mentioned multiple times um, that, you know, the 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 cannabis industry and, and the plans that, that they have for that, right? But in order to do that, you need land, right? You need so much other expertise. You need licensing. There's so many different resource needs that young entrepreneurs have that go beyond just sort of capacity building and funding, right? And so you have to think about entrepreneurship as a holistic journey, right? That people beyond just having less admin, right? It shouldn't be as difficult as it is to get a bank account, for example. Um, you know, if you don't have a proof of address, you can't get a bank account. But where so many people live in areas that don't have addresses, right? That's that's just one barrier that they're going to face to starting a business. Um, and so beyond the red tape, people need things like mentorship, right? They need things like actual resource support. Um, we've got some really amazing initiatives that are happening right now now that support young businesses um, off the top of my head if you think about people like the guys at the hookup dinner um, that really understand what it means to be a black young entrepreneur in South Africa um, and what that entire journey looks like right supporting 
initiatives like that is also a way to i think aid entrepreneurship right so your minister of small business is not going to know everything there is to know about what it means to start and run your own business right people in the department may not know that either um and i think especially in our government we know that just because you work for a department doesn't mean you know anything about the work that it's meant to do but we have so many existing incubators mentorship programs um you know, um, there's something called the People's Fund, which is um, a fund that helps young young entrepreneurs. So if you have a um, a government tender, for example, and you need startup capital to provide um, the things necessary in the tender, they raise that money for you with the understanding that when you get paid, you'll pay them back, right? And it's this understanding that we can all kind of put our hands up to help each other take that first step um, so that you can then move yourself forward afterwards, right? Right? And it's initiatives like that that require support. Um, and so I think one of the things that we miss, especially when we talk about unemployment, when we talk about entrepreneurship, is that it's it, sure, it's not government's job to do everything, but that's why partnerships are important, right? Not bringing in more so-called experts and paying them tons of money to solve problems that other people can also solve, right? There's there's a big need, I think, to reach across the border and say, who are the existing initiatives, the existing organizations, the existing programs that are already doing well? And how do we support them so that they can continue doing their work, so they can scale up doing their work? Um, but I think as long as we kind of create this idea that there's nobody else that understands entrepreneurship and that the only big problem we have is red tape, then we're not really going to get anywhere. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there's the the importance and the uh, heavier reliance on partnerships, on supporting um, extra or existing initiatives and programs, and on providing more than just administrative support to businesses. So providing more resource support, more mentorship, um, and more sort of business skill building. Thanks. The mute button. I I'm scared to answer. I'm scared to answer. So th th the first issue is that the, the president, um, not for the very first time, seemed to have tried to retract the granular aspects of what he had said at the State of the Nation address. So in the State of the Nation address, he was unequivocal that it is indeed the private sector that is going to get us there. And by the time we got to the Monday newsletter, which I hope uh, 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 most of us still read, it was now him trying to find a blend between the two. The problem seems to be that the conversation then gravitated towards this concept of exclusivity in that it's either going to be the private sector or it's going to be government. The reality is that it isn't an exclusivity, exclusivity um, or at least it should not be a pursuit of exclusivity. So to take you through the dimensions of the state's role in the employment dimension, there is, of course, what we all know to be the civil service. So the police, the teachers, and everyone else that is directly employed by the state, um, that is the first role that the state can play in the employment dimension. The reality, though, of course, is that eventually every single state, uh, every single civil, civil service is going to reach some level of equilibrium, whether you want to call it the capacity, that's what it is. And in South Africa, there are very few instances where a part of the state can say that we have vacancies that haven't been filled in years. They are, of course, what we refer to as um, HTFV. 
HTFV is hard to fill vacancies. So you will go and look at maybe institutions that have uh, require some critical skills where it suddenly looks like there is a, a huge um, uh, you know, uh, vacancy rate then. So that is a particular dimension that has actually been well explored by the Department of Public Service and Administration where they sought to understand whether the state had indeed reached a form of employment equilibrium. Then they found that there were still some positions that were not filled and then they concluded that those actually are classified as hard to fill vacancies. In other words, there aren't enough people with their skills level in order to fill those jobs. But in any other dimension, the state has probably reached what we may call the civil service equilibrium. They've employed as many people as they can, and unless they create a new department or devolve something else, they're unlikely to increase that particular dimension. So that's where the state plays a, di a direct role in employment. The state's bigger role, however, is in facilitating the ability of other parts of the ecosystem, in other words, the private sector, to become employers. And in order to do this, the state has got two particular responsibilities. The first one is for the state to acknowledge that there are some industries, there are some sectors where the private sector left to its own devices would quite simply not be able to run those industries or sectors. So those of you that may remember, it was this problem that emerged exactly 100 years ago in 1922 that leads to the creation of ESCOM. The reason you have an institution like ESCOM is that when the mining houses suddenly discovered electricity and electrification became a thing, what we then saw was a country becoming these islands of light. In other words, where industrial activity was, then you will see some light because they've decided we need electricity. Now the question that a state has to deliberate on is to say, okay, cool, it looks like the ability to achieve electrification is dependent on you know, the question of resources and capital. And if you simply say the private sector must do it, they will decide at their own discretion where they think they should put up the electricity based on the affordability, for example, of that particular area. In other words, the private sector is not going to achieve mass electrification, but they'd rather pursue what you may call profitable or sustainable electrification. In other words, the rural villages where there's no economic activities will remain in the dark. So it's the same conversation that you have when you talk about railways. So public utilities actually emerge from the realization that the state has to step in. The reason the state is capable of stepping in is that one of the reasons the private sector won't be able to um, you know, initiate mass electrification is that for them, it becomes a question of how profitable is this? And there's always going to be parts of the, of the country or parts of society where the numbers just simply do not make sense, so therefore nothing will happen there. The difference between the private sector and the state is that the private sector has got a much longer lead time. In other words, they are not confined into five or 10 year investment horizons where the shareholders suddenly say, hi, where's the return on this? So the state is going to be there forever. So they are able to then say, well, if this thing is going to take 50 or 100 years to actually reach some form of break-even point, that's fine. The state will still be around in 50 or 100 years. So that's when the state then steps in and says, we will be the ones that put up the railways across the country. We will be the ones that lead the mass electrification campaign. So that's why you end up with public utilities that are running those particular services. Now, for as long as a country is developing like South Africa, there are definitely a lot of areas where there is still a need for the state to take take the lead and say, we are going to initiate this because we know the private sector on its own is simply always going to say no. And that seems to be 
the model that South Africa is struggling to find right now. So if you look at the, uh, the reason Sasol exists is that, well, if there are sanctions that say nobody's going to sell all to you, unless, of course, you uh, know a guy called Mark Rich, you need to be able to find a way to do it yourself. So therefore, you saw a lot of these industries being created out of the realization that the state had to step in and make these things happen. Now, in relation to that particular secondary dimension, those industries may indeed become high employment industries. They may indeed become massive absorbers of, of people um, in the workforce. But eventually, once a country has essentially created all the industries where the state has to take the lead, then you reach a form of a saturation point there. In South Africa, we're not there yet. So there's still a lot of in, uh, uh, things that need to be done where the state is supposed to be taking the lead, but they're not doing so. So that's the secondary dimension on how the state gets involved in the employment dimension. But the great reality is that in order to then enable and unleash the private sector as an employer in itself, the state then has to create the type of policy environment that makes it viable, that makes it practical and feasible for, for businesses to thrive. The great irony, of course, is that in spite of what some people may suspect, it isn't big business that is the great driver of employment. It's actually the small businesses. However, South Africa's greatest problem seems to be that the big businesses that exist in South Africa are big businesses that have benefited from very, very monopolistic practices that have been you know, created over long periods of time. So you do, when you look at the concentration in the banking system, for example, it's a problem there. The concentration in many sectors is a problem, which means that this particular government had an even greater responsibility to be able to deliberate on the question of, well, if market patterns look like this, how do we then ensure that small businesses, which are always going to be the drivers of employment, are able to grow to the scale that we believe is necessary for us to get there? That, unfortunately, has been the great failure of this ANC government, is that it still hasn't found a solution of breaking market concentration in many key industries, which simply means that what we are now saying is that the rules and regulations that Sipongosi has now been appointed to go and resolve are what I refer to as derivative rules and, uh, and regulations. In other words, it has the rules and regulations that work well for big businesses. So what has been happening over the better part of the past 30 years is that we've looked at the sector and then we've said, oh, these are the things that happen in that sector. These are the rules and regulations. And then you've tried to sort of water them down or loosen them and then say that is what small businesses need. However, the templates and the blueprints for all of those rules are designed with big businesses in mind, which is why we then say that there's a lot of red tape, there's a lot of bureaucracy that paralyzes small businesses from doing particular things. A very simple example is the cost of compliance or the question of compliance. So, of course, big businesses, for example, are going to have a compliant division dedicated to understanding what the rules and the regulations are and the laws are. And they could anecdotally be able to conquer all of those hurdles within a day because they know exactly what to do. Similarly, if you then design a model that says, oh, no, we've decided that a business needs to be registered in this way. We've decided a business needs to be able to submit these particular compliance protocols. And then you immediately cascade that to small businesses. Suddenly you realize that they don't have the capacity or the ability to then apply or at least comply with the existing laws. And that's the big problem that we have in South Africa in that we've always tried to create rules derived from a system that works for highly concentrated industries, for highly monopolistic industries, which is why the small business sector in South Africa doesn't stand a chance. 
Now, of course, the president has then said, I'm going to take someone who, quite ironically, used to run one of the beneficiaries of the bureaucracy. In other words, someone who's run a big business to be the one that then crafts a solution that should then say, this is how small businesses are going to stand a chance. Whether he's going to be able to achieve that, whether he's going to be able to execute on that is, of course, what we're going to have to watch and see for the next 12 months or so. So the whole point that I'm trying to raise is that firstly, the, the president was completely wrong in simply trying to create the impression that it is the private sector on its own. Rather, what we know is that the state has a particular role to play. The first role is direct employment through the civil service. That eventually reaches a form of equilibrium. And in South Africa, I would argue that we're close to that equilibrium. The secondary role is to then become the conduit or the driver of the network industries that uh, that big business and private businesses are quite simply never going to participate in. And because of the importance of those particular industries, they themselves become massive employers. So if you look at ESCOM, for example, and Transnet, for example, that's exactly what I'm referring to. And then that becomes the policy variable, which is a third variable, which simply says that we need to then enable the private sector, the private businesses to also do whatever it takes for them to become massive employers and South Africa under previous administrations and spectacularly under this one has quite simply not found the right recipe for that. I feel like everyone left while I was talking. That hurts, guys. Yeah, they, it, this was an easy way of telling you, Kai. I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. I'm done. Next time, buddy. Next time. No, I think uh, the Youth Lab team just got disconnected. Um, I know Dimple was texting me to ask me if I know what happened. Um, so maybe we can just move. Yes, um, Dimple got disconnected, but um, she's back on now as a speaker, if I'm not mistaken. But I um, can continue. My end, my end, she's listed as a listener. It's not. It's not changed. I'm back, guys. Can you hear me? Here we Welcome go. back. Thank you. I was. Uh, um, was it boring? Was it boring? You ran away. Um. No, not at all. You can never be boring, Kaya. Um. It was definitely sabotage from uh, the network, but we do have about eight. It was your enemies. <laughs> Dimple does your enemies. Talk to me, please. Bear with me. <laughs> Um, but I was saying that we are almost at nine o'clock and we, ha we haven't even touched on the budget speech. So I wanted to come to you first, Kaya, and ask, how does SONA influence the budget speech, right? So that's the first question. Yeah. And as we sit mm -hmm. and listen to the Minister of Finance next week, as young people, with all of the issues um, that have been spoken about today, what are the things that we should be looking out for? And does a big budget mean that we should be hopeful for some kind of progress and material change, given that that hasn't been the track record. For example, education is one of those departments that gets um, one of the biggest cuts in the budget, right? But we, we know that our public education system is deteriorating. Um, so those are three questions. I'm not sure how you're going to answer them at once. And then yeah. Pearl, so, Kaya, I'm sorry, Kaya. Pearl, after Kaya, I'm going, we're going to come mm. straight to you. Um, you spoke a lot about um, youth employment initiatives, and we, we've now spoken about the Department of Small Businesses and the roles that the role that SMMEs play in ultimately solving the employment problem in the country. With everything again that we've mentioned, what is a realistic employment plan for young people that takes into account things like climate change and energy? 
um, uh, 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 things like education and the kind of skills that we are producing as a country. And I think that also takes into consideration the very real reality that we're simply living in an economy that's not growing. All right. So um, a very simple one. The role of the budget is to then essentially fund last week's wish list. So the state of the nation address essentially says to us, this is what we as the government of the day have committed to doing. And then the finance minister must now tell us how it ought to be funded. The interesting thing, of course, is that the budget process starts much earlier than uh, 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 the state of the nation address uh, a crafting process. We have something called the Ministerial Committee on the Budget, which starts um, engaging, I think, from as far back as the August of the previous year, which simply says, OK, cool. All you as departments, tell me exactly what you want, tell me exactly what needs to be funded so that by the time I've consolidated everything, I can come up with a budget. So it's a great anomaly that the budgeting process actually precedes the process of crafting the, the State of the Nation Address. It's also quite interesting that the State of the Nation Address, well, historically, and it's supposed to be heavily influenced by what happens at the January 8th statement itself, because that is the party's um, annual manifesto, if you want to call it that. And you would expect that a fully functional party that's in government will say the party manifesto must filter into the government manifesto, and that becomes the state of the nation address. Whether the government has ever got that right, this idea that you decide on the manifesto long after you've started on the question of budgeting is obviously the great <clears throat> talking point that we can deliberate on on another time. So what you then expect to see next week is first in the question of did any new commitments emerge from the State of the Nation address, things that are not ordinarily part of the budget itself? And of course, your answer is an overwhelming yes. The extension of the social relief grant is a new budget item because as recently as October, the finance minister couldn't commit to it. He said, I don't know, I get told and then I'll budget for it. So those are the things that you then expect to see. Then there's a secondary question of in the existing commitments that the state had, have there been um, increases in demands, if you want to call it that? If, for example, we've realized that we want to widen the reach of the National Student Financial Aid Scheme, for example, then, of course, we need to be able to see the budget responding to that. So what you then supposed to do is essentially track and pick up and, you know, a screen out from the president's State of the Nation address all the issues that then need to be funded, all the elements of the wish list that are resource dependent. And then look at what the, uh, the minister says next week and says, wait, okay, the minister has covered all of these things, but it looks like he hasn't covered this particular part that seemed to be central to the president's state of the nation address. We have a problem. So that's essentially the prism from which you need to be able to evaluate um, the budget of next week. Because what then happens is that if there are already things that the president mentioned last week, that the finance minister cannot factor into his budget this week, well, you know that those things are not going to materialize. And as I said earlier on, when we then get to next year's State of the Nation address, the reflective element of it is then going to have to acknowledge that that didn't work or that didn't happen because the resources were not properly or adequately allocated to it. So that's essentially the overlaps and the intersections between the budget itself and the State of the Nation address. There are obviously every single year new and an ever wider and an ever more complex set of demands that the budget also needs to cater for. The biggest challenge, of course, is that whatever that wish list looks like, that wish list is subject to one overwhelming constraint, the question of what resources are indeed available. 
So next week we will hear a lot of um, uh, time will be dedicated to the fact that last year there was a commodities boom. So suddenly commodities price sp- prices spiked up, which means that SARS was able to collect more in taxes and we call that the windfall tax because it was not expected. The big question that the budget has to deliver on next week is firstly, how big was that windfall tax? And more importantly, what do you do with it? So governments tend to figure out that, well, if there's a windfall tax, we may decide that we want to pay off some of pre-existing debts. So therefore, it simply goes towards debt uh, repayment costs. Or they may then decide that now that we've had this fortune of a windfall tax, we are now going to add this one additional our budget commitment that we hadn't thought of before. So those are the, going to be the balances and the considerations that are going to emerge next week. And then when it comes to the question of what else can we do in order to get greater resources, then that's where you see the sin taxes come in. And that's where you see the question of what the personal income tax rates are going to be. Because next week's conversation is about trying to then pay for all the things that we heard last week. And I'll stop there for now. Oh, my turn. You know, uh, so my response is going to be a bit less technical than Kaya's because I don't have CASA next to my name. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, if I'm not mistaken, Dimpo asked me to basically solve unemployment in this response. And I'm not sure that I can do that. But what I will say is that the budget speech tells us a lot about what our government values, right, and what our government prioritizes. One of the big things that they've loved doing it, every year almost is taking away from the education budget and putting things, putting that money somewhere else. And so I think for me, when I watch the budget, what I look for is a comparative between how much money gets sent to what I consider priority issues. Right. Um, And I know the the youth lab team will probably put out some um, work in the lead up to the budget speech to kind of do a comparative between all those things. But I think as young people who are watching the speech, what we should be looking for is what are the things that we prioritize, right? If you're young in South Africa, the main thing we're prioritizing is education. How much money is being sent to basic education? How much money is being sent to higher education, right? We're hearing year in and year out about how NISFAS doesn't have money, about how the TVET infrastructure program is not working, about how schools don't have toilets. And so how much money is being put in to actually solve these things, right? Um, so so that would be the first thing. For me, when I think about the unemployment solve, um, I think about it in two ways. There's the one, which is the immediate need to create jobs, right? And that's difficult because you need you need to be able to, you can create, you can only create jobs in an economy that's growing, right? And, but you can't grow an economy if you don't have jobs. And so we're trapped in this very weird cycle of non-growth. Um, and so it's difficult to think about what job creation looks like. And so for me, I kind of like to take a step back when we talk about unemployment, right? And think about what are the things that feed into your ability to be employed, Obviously, we've already I've already mentioned education, right? But it's other things. It's health, it's safety, um, it's public transport, right? It's basic services. And so I think we should be looking and paying very close attention to how much money is being put on those areas, right? Um, one of my other hats that I wear is the National Planning Commission. And one of the big things that the National Development Plan talks about is the need to build people's capacities, right? Or build people's capabilities. Um, and what that means for the non-BA students in the room is that the government should be able to say to you, what is the kind of life you want to live? 
And how do we as the government support you so that you can build the capabilities needed for you to live that life? And so if you want to be an engineer, right, how do we create a schooling system that allows you to go through it and study what you need to study and become an engineer, right? And so for me, I think we need to consider what are the issues, the 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 other pillars that uphold people's ability to be employed um, and how much is government prioritizing those things. Um, I think the other thing is actually the, the tangible um, contributions that are being made to youth development the youth development machinery in South Africa. So um, we've got the NYDA. Um, we've got all of these big um, initiatives that the president's mentioned, right? So things like the National Youth Service, things like the President Youth Employment Initiative, things like YES. Um, how much money is actually being committed to those things, right? So one of the things the president, not like I mentioned earlier, was that the, the National Youth Service, which is a program of the NYDA, is going to support 50,000 people. But they didn't give the NYDA the budget to support 50,000 people. And so I'm interested to see whether the NYDA, for example, will get an increase um, in the budget from Treasury, right? Um, And so I think those are the things we should be looking out for. I don't think that throwing money at um, existing initiatives that are not working is going to help us. And so I don't think that we must be swayed by the big numbers that we may hear. Um, I think we have a responsibility to look at... um, issues that we feel strongly about and the departments that that are behind them and the programs that have been initiated and where those programs um, are sitting right now. Um, There's a website called the Parliamentary Monitoring Group, pmg.co.za, and they provide a really great tracking um, of different government programs and departmental programs, right, down to how many schools um, there are toilets being built in right now. And so I think we have a big responsibility in the lead up to the budget to go and look at those things and look at the progress that's been made or hasn't been made um, and look at whether the budgetary allocations actually speak to the kind of work that people want to do. Um, and so, yeah, I think as as just my last point, I think we have a lot to learn about how the, the president and his team views and values um, the next year that South Africans have to live in by the things they prioritize in the budget. And so we should be looking closely for that. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys very much um, for giving us those insights and uh, your perspective. I've just got a few more questions um, around the budget that I hope you guys can maybe clarify for us. Um, One has to do with the extension of the social distress grant of 350 Rand. I mean, to me, he extended it by a year. And before that, um, he had cancelled it just before the July unrest and then reintroduced it um, again. It kind of seems like the uh, the president he he realizes the need for a almost like a basic income grant, but it's uh, not being called that. He keeps on referring to social distress grant. But I mean, what do you, what's your guys' take on that? Do you think that um, our government is ready for? Uh, a big, basically a basic income grant, or do you think that the budget is too constrained? Uh, maybe, Pill, you can go then, Kaya. Uh, 
So the short answer is that until the pandemic happened, this was never going to be contemplated because many reports have been put together around trying to figure out what the country's comprehensive social security program ought to look like. And of course, what we now have is that we've got what I refer to as the the, the disconnected um, social assistance program, which takes um, classifies society into three broad categories. They are the young people, so they may qualify for a child grant, a child foster grant, for example. So that seems to assist people up until a particular certain age bracket. And in an ordinary society, of course, the reason people would leave that system is because they are transitioning into a form of self-sufficiency, or as the economists would call it, autarky which then says that, well, you're 18, we no longer need to put you on the uh, on the social assistance programs because you are able to either transition to higher education or get your own job. And we are not going to talk to you until you reach, you know, pensionable age, in which case we're going to resume that. So that's the model that has been operating for a very long time. And of course, the problem in South Africa is that that transition where you're migrating from one form of a social assistance program to another has actually been a transition into different forms of poverty. So the reason we call it a transition into different forms of poverty is that there is a universal acknowledgement that even the grants that we do offer, particularly the child grants, are themselves inadequate. If you look at the nature of resources that are required to actually you know, raise a child properly, if I can simplify it like that. So that's a form of poverty that is alleviated by the fact that at least there is enough money to buy a loaf of bread, right? So we call that a form of social poverty. What people then migrate into is what I refer to as economic poverty. And the distinction there is that if you are on a social grant today because you're a child and then it's your birthday tomorrow, the day after you no longer qualify, it simply means that the poverty still exists. However, the only way for you to be able to tackle that poverty is to get access into the economic bandwagon. So that's why I refer to that as economic poverty. So what we've seen is that citizens actually migrate from different forms of poverty. And then what you see is that when, even when people get to pensionable age, unless they have their own um, you know, private savings from a lifetime of work, then they depend on the state pension. But because so many people do not have a job to begin with, then it's very unlikely that the majority of people are going to say, I've got enough savings from a lifetime of work because guess what? There is no such thing to begin with. So even those that are now on the other side of the spectrum are then being reintegrated back into a form of social poverty, which is simply the grants that they get allocated, the pensions that they get allocated are inadequate to cater for the basic needs that they have. And whether you define that as the poverty line or you know, as a, or as a normal food basket, that's the problem that we have. Now, the reason the government hadn't found a way of bridging those forms of poverty or at least uh, alleviating them in one, in one way and another is that they simply said that the resources were not there, okay? And of course, the issue of resources not being there when we speak about the state must always be seen from the prism of two interesting propositions. The one proposition always says that, well, for every government, the answer anecdotally will always be that the money is not there until, of course, they prioritize a particular agenda or a particular idea, and then they allocate resources to it. So if you went to the government tomorrow and said, can I uh, have money to buy a Toyota test? The answer will be no. It's not that the money isn't there, technically. It's that the allocation hasn't been made. So in relation to this problem that we've seen is that the state has always said that the resources are not there, but the state hasn't then gone back and said, okay, 
this is what we're committed to, and this is how we're going to gradually find the resources or leverage the resources in order to enable us to make it. So it wasn't the state that said, give us five years, give us 10 years, we'll come back with a fix. It was simply a state that hoped that we would never ask about it. So when the pandemic started and it was the state that was then denying those people that are subjected to economic poverty, in other words, the 18 to 64 age bracket, when the state was itself denying them the opportunity or the ability to go and then alleviate their economic poverty on their own by going to work, it is only then that the state felt compelled to say, okay, these people are actually being denied an opportunity to make their way through the day because we've said they can't go anywhere. So that's why we must then step in. Now, of course, once you've started rolling that out, it then made it very clear that the scale of the need was great. If the scale of the need was great during the pandemic, you'd have to reach a truly extraordinary state of affairs that says that everything has been restored to where it was in order for you to easily say we're pulling this out. And of course, it's been very clear that we're still living through the pandemic phase. That's the first problem. And the main numbers of people that have been using these grants are people that once you take them away, they are literally back onto economic poverty. So politically, it's definitely a hard sell. So that's why the government keeps pushing their can down and say, we'll keep it at this level because luckily for them, you could say that the 350 is quite affordable. Uh, it, it, it's not a trillion rand per year, if I can put it like that. So it falls within the ambit of what may become an acceptable concession and an acceptable compromise. So that's why we've kept it going. Now, whether this then becomes the, the, the trigger for the universal basic income grant is a far more difficult question for the state because the first question that we're going to ask is to say, okay, if it is a universal basic income grant, at what level do you pitch it? And the tension point is always going to be, what happens if you then give somebody 350 rand and then we reach a level where every single definition says that 350 is not good enough to get anyone through a week, let alone through a month? Does it make a difference to anyone if you give them that? So that's what they're going to have to deliberate on. So some of the research that has been conducted and presented to the president and because of who he is, there are many reports that have been presented to him have said, well, if you decide that indeed we want this to be the permanent feature, then this is the number which should be pitched. And I think from the data I've seen, the lowest of those numbers is 624 rand on a monthly basis. Still inadequate, but it at least alleviates what we refer to as economic poverty. So those are the dimensions that are at play here. And next week's budget has suddenly become easier to table for the minister because he simply has to replicate what's already been done, the 350 rand. Had the conversation um, you, you know, move towards saying that we are now implementing a universal basic income grant, then 350 is an unstarter because 350 has got nothing to do with any of the data or any of the projections or any of the calculations that have been done in relation to the question of the universal basic income grant. The difficult part is that whether politicians like it or not, or whether citizens like it or not, you're going to have to explain where the resources are going to come from. And until you find a way of marshalling and creating those additional resources gradually or you know, in the long term, you're actually going to end up with an inevitable inevitable financial squeeze, which simply means that they will say we're rolling it out and then a few years later, they'll actually run out of money. They'll literally run out of money and then they'll be forced to withdraw it anyway. And that's where you're going to see the social unrest. So July will feel like a picnic. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, 
Kaya, we have come to the end of our space. Well, almost. Um, we're about 15 minutes over time. And so I'm going to ask my final question and ask that both Pearl and Kaya um, kind of tie that up as they and, and as their closing remarks, right? And the question was initially, what are the four points I think that you are most looking forward to during next week's um, budget speech or that you or that are like important important points, key areas that you want to hear the finance minister talk about. But I'm going to rephrase the question. So last week, if you've never interacted with Youth Capital and Youth Lab, we had a Sona watch party with our network of young people. And we were kind of just giving live feedback and our reactions of what the president was saying. And then straight after the president spoke, we also had a space again where we were just sharing our feedback and some of the hits and misses that we thought the president made. So my question to you is, and from, from what young people were saying, right, is that the president says the same thing every year. So he keeps making promises. He keeps talking about new initiatives. He keeps touching on the same things, COVID recovery, employment, uh, climate change. But none of these things actually lead to material change in the lives of young people. So what are the two or three things that the finance minister can say next week during the budget speech that are actually going to give you hope or that actually have the potential to give you hope? I'm going to start with Pearl and then Kaya, and you both have two minutes uh, because we really have to go. Uh, thanks, Dimple. So the thing the finance minister could say that would give me hope is we are all resigning, let's start again. Um, but that's not going to happen. And so what I'm looking forward to seeing is just how much investment there's going to be in the entire youth development machinery. Um, so I obviously have a vested interest in the NYDA. And so I would like to see how much money gets sent to um, to us for um, different initiatives, different projects that we're trying to do. Um, I want to see how much money is going to be put into the Presidential Youth Employment Initiative. Um, I want to see how much money is going to be sent to higher education specifically, um, what kind of interventions are going to be there for TVETs. Um, I know one of the big things TVETs are struggling with is infrastructure development. And so I I, I, I would really like to see how much that is prioritized. Um, I am curious to see what the extension of the um, the social grant is going to look like, the 350. Um, but I think for me, the main things is really going to be about um, how much is the government actually prioritizing youth? Um, I know other people might have other interests, but mine starts and ends at young people. Um, and so how much is going to be spent on initiatives that are there to develop young people in this country? Country, how much are we going to get towards um, employment initiatives? I would really not like to see new things being announced. Um, I would love to see older um, initiatives being given more money. So um, there's an initiative called the, I think it's the Accelerated, um, what's it? The the Accelerated School Infrastructure Delivery Initiative, which is basically the initiative that was created to eradicate pit toilets in schools. Um, we didn't get an update on that in Sona, and so I would like to see how much money has been given to that. So really big on infrastructure um, and really big on kind of employment programs and other youth development programs. Um, that's what I would like to see. Thanks. Yeah, 
you say three things. Um, yeah, and I suppose obviously the big win is would be for the state to acknowledge that they probably don't have a master plan. The economic blueprint of the country just quite simply doesn't exist. So I think for me, obviously, the reality here is that if you recall what the president has been emphasizing ever since he came into office, is that he believes that you know getting massive investment, massive infrastructure uh, projects uh, to be implemented is going to be what unlocks some economic shift that moves the dial in one form or another. And of course, this being his essentially, well, last week was his last um, State of the Nation address of his first term. And in an ordinary society, we wouldn't know whether he's coming back next year or not. But I think the ANC in its form means that he's going to come back next year. He's now some, somehow has to deliberate on the question of what exactly has been the legacy of his first administration. And the legacy of his first administration is a very mixed bag. Unfortunately, it's mixed with all the wrong things. So what we then expect to see from his finance minister is a simple question of now that the president has literally spent five years trumpeting that investment is the one thing that he wants to champion. How much am I putting on the table to then say, we are going to uh, plant the first tree so that every other private sector player, for example, then believes that we can all start planting. And I think that's what's been missing. There's always been this idea that I want people to come and invest in the country. But the reason that hasn't materialized is that the anxieties around the state and the state policy being, you know, anything, anyway, the wind is that many of those that look at opportunities say, what if the state changes the rules in the middle of the project? That means I'm going to be screwed. So what you then want to see is the state itself then saying, we're going to do this because once they start doing that, it means that the likelihood of them suddenly changing the rules overnight, leading to that project being abandoned, is slightly reduced. It's not eliminated, but it's slightly reduced. So we're going to have to see this government saying that this is where we're putting our money this is what we are doing in order to take the lead in all the things that we've been trumpeting for the past four years that we want to do. And that, for me, must be what emerges from the budget next week. All the other issues relating to the bailouts of state-owned enterprises, they will uh, elegantly stay away from them because the president has said, the previous finance minister has said, we're not going to do it again. So therefore, they're not going to mention that even if there's one way in which they still think it needs to be done. There will also, unfortunately, be the looming question of how do you actually want to manage the state enterprises. And if you remember what the president said yesterday to the media, he is now gravitating towards the model that is in use in Singapore. That has enormous implications for how state assets are to be managed going forward. And the finance minister has to be the first one that gives us insights into whether the president was serious or he was dreaming yet again. Thank you so much, guys, for um, giving those insights and answering our questions, even though they were quite difficult. Um, and yeah, thank you for just being such great host, guest, sorry, and um, being up to talk. If anybody would like to um, say anything still, um, you still have a time to request to speak and we'll let you talk. Otherwise, we will wrap up um, this evening's conversation and look forward to the budget speech. And um, hopefully, the president is able to allocate funds and the government is able to allocate funds in the correct places. Um, 